Scripture for our message this evening comes from the book of Nehemiah. Perhaps not uh, a place of your recent devotions, but uh, you can start at Psalms and go to your left and you will find it. And uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on pages 331 and 332. Tonight we will read all of the first chapter and through the eighth verse of the second chapter of Nehemiah. And as we read, I again remind you, this is the very word of God, and so please give it your close and undivided attention. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanai, Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of the heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste? And its gates are burned with fire. And the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I I set him a time. 
Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they, may per- they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for Nehemiah, for his courage, for the example that he sets forth for us here. Lord, we ask in these few minutes as we examine this passage that you might instruct us into what it means to follow after you closely and even without instruction beyond your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that we live in a society that does not do ordinary particularly well. We live in a society where we are bombarded with messages through various media as many as hundreds of times a day, and the general theme of those messages is to create discontent in our hearts. It's to help us to not be satisfied with what we have, but rather to want what we do not or perhaps cannot have. And it creates a general sentiment that good enough is no longer good enough. It's no longer enough to have things that work. We must have things that are also excellent and beautiful. And it's no longer to simply have sustenance we must have Instagram-worthy food, and we must have, uh, we must have experiences that we can push to our social media accounts and help everybody else to know that we're living an extraordinary life and not an ordinary one. And I'm afraid that such a mentality has extended even to the church, and some churches, I think, will go to almost any length to distinguish themselves and to distinguish what being a part of their worship means uh, and as they try to attract new people to them. Not that long ago, I was with one of the churches in our presbytery helping them do some planning, and one of the questions that we were asking is, what are some things that other churches are doing that's excellent and that might be instructive to this church in perhaps uh, perhaps. modifying its practices and a particular church name came up and somebody said we're looking for excellent not notorious and I said and I said I said okay I don't know this church tell me a little bit more about it they said well the pastor's zip lines into the pulpit as if that gives you any indication of what of what worship means there and I'm afraid that Sometimes church has sort of devolved into something P.T. Barnum might have conceived of, something that belongs in the movie The Greatest Showman more than it belongs in a liturgy at a church. And I say all this because it may not be obvious upon first, upon first examination, but Nehemiah is actually a celebration of the ordinary here. He takes that which is ordinary, 
and which is given to him. And God is able to use it and do extraordinary things through him. And hopefully as we, as we go through, you'll start to see how that is the case in our passage this evening. But first, I, it's always a, always a hazard when we parachute into a passage such as this that may not be familiar or may be only vaguely familiar to you as to what exactly is happening here. So a little bit of context is necessary. Nehemiah takes place during the exile of the Israelites. Um, Daniel was taken by the Babylonians, as you may well know, um, and uh, they will later fall to the Persians. And all of this takes place in modern-day Iran. This is this all started in 572 B.C. And our letter, Nehemiah, as best as scholars can place it, takes place in 440 B.C., so about 130 years, give or take, later after the initial exile. So the exile has, been, has gone on for some time. Now Ezra has preceded Nehemiah. In fact, in uh, some of the old, uh, in, uh, the old manuscripts, Ezra-Nehemiah is a single book. And Ezra is able to go back from exile and go back and reconstruct the temple um, in Jerusalem. And that and that is uh, that is a great thing, and we see God do wonderful things in the heart of not one but two kings to make that happen. But it's already been a roughly seventy years since that work commenced, and so what's important to recognize is that Nehemiah is separated both temporally and by distance logistically from any glory that Israel may have ever known. And as we, as we see that, it becomes a little more remarkable how he responds the way he does to this news that he receives. So let's first look at the heart of God's deliverer. And the heart of God's deliverer is first moved by God's priorities and doesn't have to be informed what those priorities are. First, Nehemiah is concerned enough to see Hanani and to ask him how things are going in Jerusalem. Now, this is that Nehemiah has any concern about Jerusalem, we'll see in a moment, is itself remarkable. And he gets this report from Hanani that the gates are still broken down, the wall is down, and the people live in people live in reproach. And there's still the scars of the fire that was, uh, that was uh, set when Jerusalem was initially sacked. And Nehemiah responds to this in, in, in a very extreme way. He sits down and he weeps, we're told, for many days. And he's fasting and praying before the Lord. Now, this is bad news to be sure that Jerusalem is in this sort of condition, but is it the sort of news that really warrants a response like this on the part of Nehemiah? Well, yes, it does, because Nehemiah knows that Jerusalem represents God's rule. And there is still this reproach, this earthly reproach 
upon the true God symbolized by the decrepit condition that Jerusalem finds itself in. And this is why he's weeping and mourning for this reproach that is on God. And it may not seem any big deal. The wall is down on the city. Well, obviously we have heard, uh, we've heard over the past few years a lot about border security and walls. Uh, and at that time, walls were the border of the city. And uh, so a city is defined by its wall. And to not have a wall means to essentially not exist as a city. And there was a lot of reasons for that. Walls kept out invaders. They made the city governable. They made it, uh, they, um, they defined the limits of the city. They made it defendable. It's a very different situation than we find ourselves in now where cities seem to sprawl without end and development keeps going to the very next place. I, uh, I suspect that's somewhat true here in Tallahassee. It's certainly true in Orlando, which uh, just continues to consume, uh, consume land like a virus. Uh, and that, isn't the rea- that wasn't the reality of cities in that day. They had to have a city. And you know this from a very familiar story of Jericho, where there's this wall. How are we going to how are we going to besiege Jericho? Well, God makes the wall disappear, and all of a sudden the city is completely vulnerable to the attack of the Israelites. Nehemiah knows that this reproach is on God, and he knows this only because. He knows scripture because you have to remember that Nehemiah is mourning in this extreme fashion for something that he's never seen. He's mourning for something his father would never have seen. He's mourning for something his grandfather may have seen in its very twilight at the end when it wasn't in any sort of glory. He knows this because he knows scripture, even though he has been in exile all these years. And his prayer reflects that knowledge of scripture, this heart of prayer that knows God's promises and his power. And what Nehemiah does is he appeals to God's covenant keeping character here. And he makes he quotes what seems to be probably at first, something of an odd passage of scripture from Deuteronomy 30 here, because it talks about how it talks about how uh, that if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And this is something that uh, this is something that is kind of an odd promise for Nehemiah to claim. And yet it is something that he can claim because Israel was disobedient, extremely disobedient. In fact, Israel was characterized perhaps by nothing more than its disobedience. It had exactly three kings of a united kingdom, and then a, southern, a northern kingdom broke off that never had a righteous king, and the southern kingdom only on occasion had somebody who was righteous only to have their reforms destroyed by the king that succeeded them. Israel was 
disobedient to its core. And what Nehemiah is seeing here is that God responded to that disobedience exactly as he promised he would. Nehemiah is in Persia now because of God's covenant faithfulness. Because God scattered Israel just like he said he would. But there is a second part to this promise. He knows that just as God promised to scatter them for their unfaithfulness, he promised to gather them if they would return to him. And what Nehemiah is doing really on behalf of Israel right now is promising to return to God and is claiming the promise that he is going to, that God is going to gather back to him. Now, it is interesting, I think, that Nehemiah needs nothing but his own knowledge of God's revelation to come to this conclusion. And it's, in some ways, interesting that no one else comes to this conclusion. God's revelation is readily available And yet it is Nehemiah, and Nehemiah alone, it would seem, that recognizes that this reproach is our fault. We need to return to God, and the reproach will go away, and God will be glorified once again. And the difference between Nehemiah and apparently everyone else is that he has scripture hidden in his heart. And that leads to his character and his courage. And the courage is remarkable indeed. We see the courage of of God's deliverer here. And to understand the courage that is being put forth by Nehemiah here, you have to understand the brutality of Persian rule. Artaxerxes, as you see here, is the king at this time. His father was Xerxes. Now, that name may be familiar to you because it was Xerxes who chose Esther as to be his queen who delivered the Jews from the murderous plot of Haman. Well, Xerxes Xerxes met his end when he was killed by one of his own bodyguards in a coup. Now, such a coup should have led to the rule of Artaxerxes' older brother Darius. But Artaxerxes killed Darius. So, we are now 20 years into Artaxerxes' rule. And Nehemiah has risen to the role of cupbearer to the king. Now, that may not sound like a role to which someone would rise. It may sound like something that someone might... Pay, pay for their college education doing. But instead, this was somebody to be thought of as perhaps a secret service agent. Because this, the cupbearer was the last line of defense before the king. And he was to taste the food and to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So it's a position of tremendous trust. And... You have to understand that this was a position of comfort and honor and access. Nehemiah's life in exile wasn't all that bad. 
was actually quite good. And it was a sharp contrast to the fate of his brothers who were still in Judea. Understand that you have a king here who rose to his position by not one but two murders, one of which was by his own hand. And after 20 years, it would be reasonable that paranoia would set in for somebody who rose in such a fashion. And in a regime like that, there can be no sad faces. It's sort of like what you see in North Korea. You see these celebrations of the great or dear leader or whoever happens to be the current leader, and everybody is smiling and everybody is celebrating and everybody seems boisterous. And it's because there are agents in the crowd looking for someone showing less than unbridled enthusiasm at the rule here. And the sentence for such a person is death, often by horrible means. And so the realities of Nehemiah's life is that he has high incentive to preserve his privileges and to protect his life from being mistaken as participating in a coup against the king. And perhaps a reasonable strategy to accomplish both those goals, well, that would be at cross purposes with doing anything to help Jerusalem. But like Esther before him, Nehemiah recognizes that God has put him in this position for such a time as this. And so he approaches Artaxerxes, Now, we're told that he does so in the month of Nisan. That is four months after the month of Kislev, roughly. Um, So he has been fasting, praying, and mourning for four months leading up to this moment. And he decides to allow his, his concern to show through this one day. And he's very afraid with good reason. The, the seemingly innocuous response on Artaxerxes' part says, when he says, you've never been sad before me now, what is this sadness but sadness of the heart? That is an accusation of treason towards Nehemiah. And he has probably 10 seconds to explain himself. And he immediately quells the king's concern by saying, Let the king live forever. This isn't part of a coup aimed at you. And he lets him know that he is sad by saying that, why shouldn't I be sad? Jerusalem, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins. Now, there are are certainly other reasons why, why Jerusalem has importance, but he chooses the one that is most likely to speak to Artaxerxes, this Um, this notion of the honor, the veneration of ancestors here, perhaps a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, uh, odd uh, coming to a man who murdered his own brother. But nonetheless, nonetheless, it was something that it was a value that that Artaxerxes might be able to embrace. And he doesn't get hauled off for execution in, the, in those 10 seconds, and he gets an opening. And seeing that he has an opening, he turns to God in prayer. 
to best exploit it. And he gives his he gives his request, and it's a fourfold request. He he asks that he may be allowed to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Though, as we would see later in the book of Nehemiah, he might not realize the entire scope of what he's asking for. He asks for time away from his duties as cupbearer. He asks for travel documents. And he asks for building materials. And all of the above show that Nehemiah is concerned enough to have thought through, at least in part, what rebuilding Jerusalem might entail. You think about starting from a point, who am I that might be able to help this situation? What would it take? And Nehemiah has shown some gifting in the area of strategic planning here. So he doesn't go just haphazardly to the king. He goes with what would seem to be a plan in place. And deliverance comes through this king from the one king. Here, the king says yes to all of this. This is an extraordinary request. He's not just saying, can I can I have two weeks off saying, can I go far away where I'm going to be gone for some time? Oh, and can I have some travel documents so that the people that are guarding the border don't arrest me? And oh, by the way, could I have some building materials from your own forest? Because I'm going to need them. It's an extraordinary request. And the king says yes to all of it. And this is the extraordinary part. That God is with him in this. That's the extraordinary of this passage. But there is a whole bunch of ordinary. A man who knew his scripture. Leading up to this. And God is working through this one faithful man. Who is seeking to obey His revealed will. Nothing more. No angels have come. No no visions or dreams. Just the word of God. And beyond being faithful to what he knows, Nehemiah has likely been very faithful with the gifts that God has given him over these number of years. Because he rose to a position of great trust and likely has a has a solid track record of performance and faithful servants to the king and he has some ability to think strategically about the pro, about this problem and we see God's pattern of deliverance as it happens over and over again the simple and mundane things of the faith constitute his deliverance and our kings favor to us today shows itself in some pretty ordinary things faithful gifted men serving him and the record of scripture and even when we forward into the deliverance that we have in Christ much of that is ordinary Jesus is described as a man of sorrows stricken smitten and afflicted and Ultimately, our deliverance comes to the basest of means, a cross reserved for the foulest of criminals. So, the question for us is, can we content ourselves with the ordinary things that mark our king's favor? Is it enough for us 
to hear his word to us? Is it enough for us to go to him in prayer? Is what he trans, has transmitted to us in scripture revelation enough for us from him? Are we content to sit under the authority of those whom he declares are gifts given to mark his victory over death? Are we content with our own position in the church? Nehemiah basked in ordinary things, not knowing that God would ultimately use him to do the extraordinary, to rebuild Jerusalem from the ashes. So let us be faithful in the little things and trust God to provide an extraordinary deliverance for us in heaven. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the example that you've given us in Nehemiah of faithfulness that is simple and that is based in your word. Lord, help us to run to these means of grace when we feel bereft and show us the riches that lie within. Lord, we pray that you would build up each of our faiths, that we would become more and more familiar with your word and that we would represent you better and better to a lost world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn of response is number 544, Lead on, O King Eternal. Please stand with me as you're finding that. <laughs>